Hi, this is Sarah Bull, host of the Translation Mavens podcast. In this episode, the third full episode of the Translation Mavens podcast, I talk to Catherine O'Connell of Catherine O'Connell Law. This conversation's a little bit different to other conversations on the podcast because Catherine's not actually a professional translator. She's a lawyer and she actually runs her own practice in Tokyo. In our conversation, we talk about all kinds of things. We talk about Catherine's very unconventional career and how she started to learn Japanese and how she ended up in Japan. But we also talk about how she works with translators. And as somebody who speaks Japanese and who has done plenty of translation in the past, I think Catherine brings a really unique perspective and can give us some good insights into how to do our work better and how to cooperate with our clients better to make sure that the process、um, goes as smoothly as possible for both sides. Now, I have to apologize because when we recorded this conversation, a double typhoon was actually coming through and it has affected the audio in a couple of places. None of the interruptions go for very long, and I don't think that it impedes the conversation at all. You might have to listen a little bit carefully and perhaps guess a word here or two, but、um, I think that you'll find that it doesn't affect it too much. I hope you enjoy this conversation and I'd love to hear your thoughts once you've listened. Enjoy. Hi, today we're here with Catherine O'Connell. So、um, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Catherine, can you start out by just telling us a little bit about who you are? Because you're not someone that people would have necessarily seen around in the translation community. That's right. Thanks so much for having me on today, Sarah. I'm really looking forward to it.、Um, that's right. I'm, I'm not a translator. I do、um, apply and have translators help me in my work. So I'm a lawyer.、Mm-hmm. Um, don't hold that against me. <laughs> I、uh, work in Tokyo and I've been in Tokyo for,、um, well, in Japan for 15 years working as an in house counsel. and Working in law firms, and from April this year, I launched my own、uh, law firm in Tokyo. So、um, that's where I'm at at the moment. Okay, cool. So, for the people who don't necessarily work in anything to do with legal, can you、mm. explain a little bit about what being an in house counsel involves? Sure. So, in house counsel is、uh, a person who works inside a, a company. Basically, I call it at the coalface. So, instead of working in a, a law firm where、um, you, you sit at your desk and you have a lot of clients to, to look after,、um, as an in house counsel, you work for one company inside that company and do all of the work, the legal work for that company. So,、mm-hmm. that's why it's called an in house counsel. Yep. Okay. So, so, one of the big differences would be that you really only have one client, right? You really only have one client, but that client is one client company, but they may have in the region, for example, where we are, and many of them outside of Japan. That was my most recent role, was head office was in America. So、mm-hmm. it can be dealing with the same company, but also within different regions. Right, right, right. And then also, the in house counsel, I assume that the size of the team that you would be working with would depend a little bit on the position as well, right? Very much so.、Um, if, I, if I mention a couple of companies where I've worked, which is not, you know, which is not、um, secret, it's obviously out there on my profiles on LinkedIn,、mm-hmm. et cetera. So, first, when I worked at Olympus in、uh, Tokyo, My first role when I arrived in Japan、um, in 2002, the、mm-hmm. team was about 20, and、wow. I was the single foreign lawyer, although the person I reported to was a, an Australian qualified Japanese person.、Mm. Um, then I, I moved、uh, west and went to Osaka and took up positions. And I say positions because I worked with two Panasonic companies. All、oh, right. And 
the teams there were massive, mm-hmm. um, but the, the precise team that I worked in was probably about 30 to 40 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a mix there of uh, people who come out of uh, law school but didn't have legal qualifications as you know a lawyer as such. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a couple of people who had just gone through the ranks and, and landed, landed in that um, legal risk Management, and there are a couple that have been overseas and done LLMs in in Europe or America and came back into the team. Right, so that's quite right. a. And then um, one of my other positions, yeah, I was going to say another position was basically the same in that I was when I was seconded to Mitsubishi Motors, there was also a large team there, but more uh, lawyers qualified in that team. There are about four or five other lawyers that I worked with there. Right. And then what you're doing nowadays is quite different from that, right? Can you talk a little bit about this latest adventure that you're on? Sure. Well, the thing is that it's it's similar in some ways, but it's it's quite different now because I'm not working with a team. I don't have direct reports. I'm not working um, full-time in-house. So what I decided to do was to, to, to depart from corporate world um, in terms of a full-time job and, and launch my own firm. And that firm is really, it's, it's me, and I do have a couple of other people who help me in that role, but um, I work with in-house legal counsel. So mm-hmm. I work with in-house um, law departments, legal departments, and help them with flexible lawyering. So I would provide, with, provide um, support um, for compliance or for legal issues um, on a more flexible basis. So mm-hmm. currently I help out a company one to three days a week um, for their legal services that they need um, and the other days of the week I'm also providing um, support to sort of medium to maturing businesses so it's a bit of a flexible kind of arrangement and also working for a different kind of variety of groups. Yeah um, and so can you talk a little bit about what gave you this idea to do this to make this shift from working for someone else to working for yourself and serving clients that way? Yeah I think um, it's a there's a time factor involved in that mm-hmm. you know I don't mind explaining. I, I had reached a significant age last year. Um, and so that was also, it was, a, it was important for me to think of a life plan um, mm-hmm. as opposed to career plan. Um, my family all live back in New Zealand still. And so for me, if it's important to judge the rest of my life, you know, from 50 where I am now, mm-hmm. through to whenever I decide to not work, and I think it's always easier in some way to do that if you're working for yourself than it is for others who tell you when you should retire. Right. So it's up, up to me when I decide to, and if I do, retire. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, that, and the other thing about it is with the flexible lawyering is that when I was in my past corporate role, I was faced with a, a situation where one of my staff members left. I had nobody to really call on to come and help me. And I didn't need somebody full-time I just needed someone to come in perhaps a few mornings a week and I could not find that service. Mm. Um, So that to me struck the really the first part of the idea to do this kind of business so that I could help other lawyers in the same predicament that I was in at that time. Right, right. Because I, I mean, obviously hiring a new lawyer to come onto the team would be a drawn out process and a big decision and big investment for yes. the company as well. So. Right. It's a large amount of money. I could have got an associate from a large law firm, but that would have been quite expensive. Also, people have worked just in law firms and it's no offense to them, but they don't often have that, as I call the coal face mm-hmm. um, of working inside businesses and dealing with the procurement team or dealing with HR finance people and it's really a little bit different the way you have to approach a business lens to the way you do your work um, and it's, sure. it's so I, getting somebody readily from another in-house role was also a difficulty at that time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so now that you've you've had this idea and I know it wasn't easy to get it everything set up and in place but now this model that you've envisaged is operating right and yeah, uh, it sure is it sure yeah. is and the, you know the client i just mentioned is is a large client um you know they're the one of the top three employers in japan so mm-hmm. 
it's, it's sort of a faith behind me and what I'm doing. And there is obviously a need for this service. Yeah. So if I build it, I hope to also be bringing on other part-time um, people, lawyers and other mm -hmm. who want to be working in this kind of similar way. Um, so hopefully it's going to be disrupting um, legal services in Japan. Yeah. Well, point, a little start, but, um, but building it up as I go. I think it's really exciting that you're getting this validation of your concept, right? Um, That's right, and it, it really does feel like that. It's it's an authentic business, but also somebody else from outside has validated it. So mm -hmm. um, that does bring some credibility to the to the service and to me operating it in this way. Yeah, that's excellent. But um, so we've talked a little bit about what you're doing now and your in-house counsel work before, but yeah. you weren't always a lawyer, right? Can we go back a little bit to the earlier stages of your career and talk about how you got to where you are now? Sure, thanks so much. I, yeah, that's right. And I also almost feel like I've been two people split in half, but um, you know, my, my story is from tour guide to lawyer. And so in New Zealand, um, where I, I was born and raised, I, I didn't go immediately to university from school. I went, mm -hmm. and, studied, I went and studied Japanese. Right. And I think that's probably one of the key, key things in my career, the best, one of the best investments I've ever made is learning Japanese at the outset, which has really mm -hmm. designed my path through from age 18 to where I am now. So I went and studied Japanese full time uh, for two years. I left and became a tour guide. So that's right. <laughs> um, what I did in New Zealand. And I took Japanese tourists around New Zealand. Um, I spent most of my weeks jump, jumping off bridges, bungee jumping, going on jet boats, oh, landing, wow, really? landing on glaciers and all that kind of glamorous fun stuff. So when we think of tour guides in Japan, we might be thinking of, you know, the lady in the suit with the flag, like leading the group, but you were actually doing some of the more crazy, I mean, New Zealand's kind of famous for its adventure tourism, right? That's right. And I think with Japan, they'd say, well, please go in and look at Uenozu or please go and climb Tokyo Tower, but they don't always accompany their groups doing that. But if I didn't do those things, if I didn't jump in the jet boat, the clients wouldn't have done that. So right. I, mean, I love it. I mean, sitting mm -hmm. up the front and getting splashed with water as we're screaming around the shot of a river in, in Queenstown was just the most fantastic thing, you know, and landing wow. on pristine glaciers and um, being mm -hmm. with groups. So those things were, yeah, it, it's, it was interesting to do that. But also at the same time, I thought, you know, physically my body probably wouldn't last um, right. all the way through to now. And it was really through working with clients and customers who were my, who had come from Japan, Japanese couples and, and older people and all kinds of people mm -hmm. asking me a lot of questions about New Zealand legal system and um, how New Zealand makes its laws what happens um, when people get in trouble in New Zealand, the uh -huh. courts, and all those kinds of things sort of led to a thinking about perhaps this would be an interesting thing to do to become, um, work in the law or maybe become a lawyer. And I had a friend who was uh, Japanese from Keio University and he sort of said, why don't you do it? You know, this is New Zealand, you can do anything. Why don't you go, why don't you leave your job, JTB, and go off to university? So that was really, an inspiration from people outside of me externally, clients, and also I mean, you know, that is so far from the typical career trajectory for a lawyer, right? It certainly is, and I mean, but I would repeat it again because meeting so many people at a younger age and getting into um, working with Japanese people and finding out how they tick mm -hmm. has helped and still helps me now when I think about um, you know being in a foreign country and how how that actually helps me to do my work now. Yeah, sure. So when you finished high school and went to study Japanese for two years, what did that look like? What kind of study situation was it? So that was uh, a group of 10 of us, which selected for this full-time Japanese course at what was then the Christchurch Polytechnic, which is now um, the Christchurch, I think it's Le Te Te Technology Institute. Right, and right. Yeah, and so we were really full-time immersed from 8.30 in the morning till 3 in the afternoon. And each week on Fridays, we had the dreaded writing test for kanji and, and we had to give speeches. And uh, it was really quite intense, but I, I thoroughly loved it. And it was lucky that I found something that I, I just 
got so immersed into and enjoyed. Mm. It was full time and very much intense. And I think, you know, for language, and it might lead to something you're, you may ask me is that intensity of learning is what's necessary to be successful when you're working with language. Right. Yeah, no, I do. I think that there's something um, really um, sort of interesting about that with languages. I had obviously completely different, but I didn't take um, Japanese at the beginning of grade eight. And towards the end of grade eight, when I went to choose my electives, I realized that I wanted to take Japanese and I got special permission to catch up. And there's something about that very intense period of trying to learn almost a year's worth of stuff in a term that um, I had a tutor and, you know, I was sort of cramming. I mean, it's grade eight, so it wasn't kanji, it was hiragana or whatever. But sometimes I wonder whether the subject would have held the same level of interest for me if I was just learning, say, 10 hiragana a week in between my other subjects, there was something about the intense period where I was really focused on it that um, I think made it more interesting, more satisfying. Yes, I think you're right. And also you've done it at a stage where you wanted to do this. And yeah. So you applied yourself to it in the same way for me, you, I really wanted to do this. Mm. And we were in a group, you know, small, a small enough group to also be able to support each other. Yeah. Uh, each other and also when I went home my parents were very supportive of me doing Japanese mm-hmm. I still, and you know so I, I I was allowed to to you know focus on that without having too much pressure to do you know chores and things like that so I do right you know think back on those wonderful situation where there was a lot of support as well as the intensity of um, you know actually applying yourself as well yeah, that's right. They, you sort of need to have those two things in balance or else mm-hmm. they can become, it can become sort of untenable, right, to do something yeah. that intense. But that, I mean, that sounds like an amazing course to do something that, in, that intensely and also explains why you were able to go into a career where you had to use your Japanese at a high level, right, after two years of study. That's right. We had to use it basically straight off with with um, sightseeing tours and then also being able to look after people, you know, if they went, got sick and had time. So you had to sort of have that building was or what that bridge was or about mm-hmm. the country or the city. And um, you also had to know more language in order to be able to communicate than that. Yeah, right. And also, I mean, there's quite a bit of problem solving involved in looking after those groups as well, right? Uh, well, I mean, if going to the hospital is probably a problem solving, but right. also there are things <laughs> they, they ask that are not in your textbook and you have to constantly be, um, you know, revising and looking and making sure that you've got um, you know, yourself up to date with all the kinds of questions they may ask you. So there's a bit, mm. of, bit of that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, I mean, also what a change in um, lifestyle to go from doing that to then studying law, right? That was the <laughs> next step. <laughs> yes, yes. And I really, I, I sort of think, well, how on earth did I make that decision? But I, I do think it was people not saying I couldn't. Mm-hmm. And so, and I, I, I think people supporting me, as I say, the chap who had done law and was from Keio, who was Japanese, and, you know, my family sort of not saying, well, what are you leaving a job for and going to do law? No one's done right. law in your family. Why would you want to do that? Just not hearing those voices, I think, is something that I look back on now as probably being um, very supportive and me going, making a decision to go and try something really new. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, it's kind of, um, it's interesting, isn't it? Even though it's not necessarily people saying, oh, great, yes, you should definitely do that. Even just people giving you the freedom to do what you want to do without giving their opinions or their unsolicited advice. Yeah, and no negativity. And I guess, too, being very lucky to be in New Zealand and you can do anything at any time. You can go back to university when you're 60. There's nothing to stop Mm -hmm. you. that, you know, environment that we have grown up in, I think also very much helps that ability to actually swift 
swiftly change course and do different yes. things through your life. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, um, I think about that with deferring university or changing courses and things like that. It's not such a big deal in Australia or New Zealand, right? It's it, not. No, that's right. And, you know, I went back, actually went to university then after I left JTB. I was probably, I think, 23 or so. Mm -hmm. So I, all, all of my friends who'd gone from straight from school were already gone. So yep. it was, but I didn't think about it at the time as being anything to obstruct me. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's yeah. cool. Do they call you a mature age student at 23? Well, I, or I was. I joined one of the classes, <laughs> one of the law papers I joined, I went into the the... Uh, one of the smaller classes that we had, and I was told by the teacher, Miss O'Connell, your presence is not required here. You are not a mature student. So obviously, <laughs> wasn't old enough, but um, I thought I was. But that actually made me feel a little bit better, actually. <laughs> it's interesting, <laughs> I think, because um, I did my undergrad uh, not straight out of high school, but after a year of exchange, and then I went back as a twenty seven-year-old I think to do my master's and mm. so I guess I was a mature age student then I'm not quite sure where they draw the line but um, maybe seven is 24 wasn't so <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a, yeah but it was a different completely different experience going um, back to it as someone who had worked out in the world first and who perhaps had a little bit more life experience that's right so, that's yeah. exactly right yeah, yeah. And, so did you work in the law in New Zealand as well? Or yes, you came I did. So that's right. After I went back to university, I, I studied law and also I was teaching Japanese um, first-year papers at university. Mm -hmm. And I also had time um, helping in the courts, translating for Japanese. Uh, they were defendants mostly. Right. <laughs> doing naughty stuff and were appearing before the court so um i did those those things um, mm -hmm. yeah wow that's i mean that's completely different to the kind of law that you do now right yeah that's right but after i graduated from university i did find myself in a firm that were looking to expand with japan and so i, I worked with them for seven years in new zealand before i came here mm -hmm. uh, so I did get that grounding experience in, in New Zealand, which actually has proved to be important for this most recent registration with the Japanese government, because you need to have at least three years at this time um, practice in your home jurisdiction. So I had seven, right. so that was an issue for me to, to get this foreign registration that I've got now. That, I, I think that's um, interesting, isn't it, that you didn't know that that was necessary and no. luckily you had that experience that checked that box and then didn't become a big obstacle for you that's right because it, for me i really didn't map out a career either and right. know that i would be here at this time whereas i suppose there are people who are very clued in to their life and what they want to do and so lawyers who are perhaps studying um, have studied and are now working in New Zealand or Australia, for example, may already know that they need three years to come and work here. So they will do their right. three um, penance back home before coming here. But at the time, we didn't have that knowledge and I didn't really know that it was going to lead to this one. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah, maybe things right. are different people. Yeah, I think, um, I think it was Steve Jobs who said something about you only being able to connect the dots in hindsight. And oh, yeah. I think that that definitely comes up with your career. It's like when you're in the thick of it, it's a bit hard to see how this will lead to the next thing. But then looking back, it sort of all makes kind of logical sense, right? I think the Japanese people who were in, in Christchurch and in Auckland when I was tour guiding, they became my, my clients or else they became referrals for clients, mm, mm. right? So there was a direct link there with my previous career and the, the law career. And then the jobs that I've done here since arriving, the different roles in-house, have also led to me building some credibility in the market. Yeah. And the client that I have now is a legacy relationship from, you know, more than 10 years ago. So mm -hmm. it really does. I really think um, Steve Jobs got that correct. You, you look back and you can see the dots lined out and linked yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you first came to Japan, what did that look like? Was that a changing jobs um, 
situation or did you get sent here by your firm or right that's a good question the um there's a new there's a a magazine in New Zealand called Law Talk, which is a, a magazine for lawyers. And on the back page of that, they had advertisements for, for roles and jobs. And one of my friends, uh, Tania, she's been quite significant in pointing the job out that appeared, which was ended up being Olympus, but it was a, you know, a multinational uh, Japanese corporate sees, seeks in-house legal counsel from Commonwealth country. Mm. And so I applied for that. I was interviewed in Sydney. And then on the way back to the airport after that interview, I was asked, I was rung on my phone and asked if I would like to take up the offer and come to Japan. Oh, no. So, um, I, I did say yes. And it was really easy to say yes in terms of it being just one year contract. So I knew right. at the end of one year, I could come back to New Zealand if I wanted to or stay on and find something else. And at that point, I'm guessing you didn't think that you would be in Japan <laughs> this many years later. Did you have any kind of sort of idea of what that would look like? Did you think you would come for a couple of years and then head back Probably to New Zealand? At that time, I think I only really looked at it at that exact time as the one year thing and see how it went. Mm. But because I'd visited Japan many times with groups um, for sister city exchanges, but having not lived or worked here, I didn't really know if it was going to be the right thing. Right, but again, sure. lots of things you only, until you actually try them, you don't know. And so it did work out fine. And, and I didn't really think, no, that it would be 15 years um, <laughs> or more than that, Sarah. But actually, yeah, at once it, each step led to another step and it felt right. Yeah. And I still love Japan. If you don't love Japan, you shouldn't really be here. It's my, <laughs> feeling, my gut feeling. There's no point in pushing it. it each step felt right. Mm -hmm. And still remaining in Japan feels right. So, yeah, yeah it's really led itself i haven't really projected out that i would be here for as many years as i have mm -hmm. it's interesting how things turn out right um sure. but it was quite a process for you to set up your company as it is now right i mean i think it's um i'm maybe bragging on you a little bit but you're actually the first female solo lawyer so sole practitioner lawyer am i getting that right in japan yeah, the first non-japanese so yeah. one. that's correct yeah yeah so you're and, trailblazing uh, first new zealand to set up practice here too that's right oh right okay i didn't know that that's yeah that's exciting and i mean so that means that you had to make your own path right I, yes, but again, you know, um, the process is really set out clearly in Japan. Mm -hmm. And also the regulators here, quite frankly, they're easy to deal with. Right. And so, you know, it, they only want things to go right and they only want success for you. And I would say mm -hmm. that that's the same with the New Zealand regulator who also, you know, needed to know that I was um, of sub substance and that I was going to carry the brand here for the right. New Zealand Society. So although during the process you get a little frustrated at the time it takes, right. really they only want your success. So yes, it took me eight months for Japan to get the paperwork done mm -hmm. and New Zealand another couple of months on top of that. So about 10 months, 10 months of preparation. But wow. um, it's, you know, it's worth it. Um, it's done now. History is made. And so now I, you know, hope to make a new history as I continue. Yeah, yeah, no, it, I, it's exciting. But I do admire your perseverance and, you know, getting through that and also doing it with, um, you know, grace. With it. <laughs> Like you, you seem to have a really good attitude about it all. Because I do think that kind of bureaucracy can be very yeah. frustrating. Yeah. I think I could see the end goal with this. I, you know, I could see mm. what was there, and having done a business plan, and I, you know, a, a very high high level business plan for Japan, but very detailed plan for New Zealand. It really made me concentrate and think about whether this could be a success. Mm. And there's still a lot to go, but um, I, you know, you you do need to have perseverance. I know it's when I was at school, I. I didn't get first or second in class. I won the prize for diligence. Right. I think really probably an inherent thing that I've got is that I do persevere and mum calls me tenacious. So <laughs> I think I've kind of got that in the blood and I, I'm sure I get that from her and from my dad. So yeah, yeah. carry on, you know, yeah, and, and yeah. you just have to. Um, and now it's exciting to see where you're going to go from here, right? 
I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. So let's talk about the translation side. So, I mean, as a Japanese-speaking person working as in-house counsel, you were called on to do translations as well in the beginning? Yeah, at the beginning and certainly even um, most recently in my previous, my most recent role, right, in corporate, mm-hmm. I, I did need to do a certain amount of translation because, number one, I'm dealing with people who uh, are my colleagues who may not have as brilliant English as, as some may have. Maybe yeah. the people on the sales team had not too bad English, but people who were engineers or working mm-hmm. even in finance, some of them didn't have such a, a strength in English. So... Um, I, on the other hand, could be sort of flexible within, you know, moving within both languages. So could, ended up, of course, naturally, because if you're bilingual, that does happen. So I, mm-hmm. I would help translation, but also with interpreting and meetings. Right. Uh, wasn't the best use of me, and I would say, but also it's necessary part. As I said before, when you're a, an in-house lawyer, you're working with the business. And so you've got to help in order to make the, the whole work right um, right so you don't a law firm may have translators to help you certainly yeah. we didn't have that luxury so you end up uh, doing it and it's also obviously very good for you to do it because it ends up building skills and, and working between both languages yeah sure but so then when you um then did there come a point where it really didn't make sense for you being the one for you to be the one that was doing the translation. And yeah, I'd have to say that's right. Yes. Yeah. So then what? I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there are still times when you needed to do it because of time constraints or confidentiality or something like that. Even though that wasn't your, yeah, so, you know, you're a lawyer and you should be using your lawyerly skills to do things. That's right. But what became better was I, I did have some staff a couple of staff members who are Japanese who are pretty good with English and so they helped do a lot of that work mm-hmm. also it, I could add the layer at the top where I checked their work rather right. than actually doing it so I could add that expertise and that would also help with um, building them and developing them by working with them on a, a fixed or an end product that we could work on and make it even better Mm-hmm. And there were times where we were all busy, and so we did ask external translators um, and interpreters to help us. Right, right. And can you talk a little bit about that experience, some of the highs and lows maybe, or the things that you learned through that experience of asking people outside the company to take care of some of your translation? Um, I think the one thing would be, um, obviously they were all under... Um, confidentiality agreements so that was fine I was finding the right people who could understand the kind of business um, that we had getting to know the product and um, being able to translate in a way that was familiar with the people within the organization Mm. right using language that they always used not just specifically mechanically or literally translating something for example Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm So it was, there was a bit of that, and I think it may happen with lots of translators, getting familiar with the specific industry or sector or business that you're working with. And I really felt that the one, the translators who worked well, I worked well with, were the ones that did a little bit of study before you got working with them and then were happy and eager to Mm. continue to build knowledge so that they could become better translators for the documents that you needed done. Yeah. Because some of them weren't always legal documents. They were, they were um, you know, PowerPoint decks for training mm-hmm. that included all kinds of examples related to the products. And so you needed someone who had a sort of more broader um, view of yeah. that. So mo- mostly it worked, but at the beginning it was very tough because the product would come back and you'd share it with members in the, you know, in, in the company, people who are engineers or working in um, supply chain or, and they criticize the the translation and it kind of it reflected on you or me as a department because it wasn't as exact as they wanted it or wasn't done the way they wanted it and so right. that took a lot of pain at the beginning to try and iron those things out and make sure yeah. we'd sort of um, taken it through it cleansed it before it went off to um, internal departments so I learned to do that kind of thing as 
look at it and and try and modify it first with the translator before mm -hmm. it was so you really needed external contractors who were willing to be in a sort of working relationship open to feedback and willing yes. to take on you know your like guidance about terminology and things as well right that's right yeah that's exactly right and just to be um yeah i think that flexibility and agility and mm -hmm. and being able to also help um maybe there were things that also needed to be done quickly and had and that they could sort of have a quick turnaround and be um happy and prepared to do that um mm -hmm. came back and they weren't um quite right but had to be done but had to be done quite quickly that was also mm -hmm. something very important mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think um sometimes you come across translators who kind of think that um their work should stand on its own and they don't necessarily need to be that likable like the the product is the main thing but i always think that it's very important to be easy to work with and that doesn't necessarily mean agreeing to every single request that the client makes but um being flexible is a big part of that right yeah i i agree and i think it's a personality is really important um, and I think you're touching on that is deciding on a translator, really the personality, the ability um, to be flexible and agile is not, maybe it's as important as um, technical skill of being able to mm. actually translate. Mm, mm, because but we I like, work with people that we like, right? Yeah, that's, that's right. And I liked working with those who were curious to find out about the company, mm. yeah. were really interested in not thinking of it just as a job right mm -hmm. and all of us if we think of our jobs as jobs it's not very exciting but to be That's curious right. and to know who the audience the potential readers or listeners of this product are going to be and how it's going to be used and mm. have that have that pride in the product but not so much pride about mm, not not being humble enough to receive some feedback on things so yeah, i guess for sure goes over many industries and uh, human humanness about the way that things are done yeah yeah well you know um the jat the japan association of translators there i guess it's their motto it's on their t-shirts is um it all depends on the context and oh. the translation that's key right it's not just the words it depends a lot on the context and i think um sometimes as translators how much context we are provided with depends a little bit on the situation and the client um, but it, there is a bit of an onus on the translator as well to try to figure out as much as they can about the context that will really help them to produce a better translation. That's really interesting too that you say that because I found that the one, the people who sort of said, well, they didn't tell me, so I didn't know that was harder to work with. Whereas I'd really like them sure. to actually have an exploratory or discovery call and talk about all kinds of things. If that's going mm -hmm. to help get the context for the translation rather than you know receiving it or doing it returning it and and not really understanding that context i like that look, slogan and i think that's really important when you're working with your client customer as a translator yeah, yeah no it you can know, it can make all the difference i think it does yeah yeah and i think sometimes people are um sort of reluctant to take the time so i know when i worked in-house at a law firm um, not all of the lawyers would do it, but sometimes, especially if a transaction was very complex, say a takeover bid or something, then the lawyers might take the time to bring the translators into a meeting room and sort of um, give us a quick briefing on what the scheme looked like, what this Brilliant. particular yeah. transaction would look like. And it was amazing how much you could glean from that five minutes with a whiteboard marker and a whiteboard and just saying, okay, so this is company A and this is company B and we're going to structure the transaction like this. And even just knowing that perhaps there were two purchases instead of one could make a difference in your translation right definitely that's exactly yeah. right and that's um i think it was wonderful that the the law firm did that and that's really well thinking very well about it to make sure that the whole project goes smoothly and it also opens up that environment for you there as the group to be able to ask all kinds of questions at that time right and yeah. you don't 
you're not really wasting time at all. It's an investment in time. Yeah, and that's that, right. I think those exploratory call I just talked about with a client, yes, you might have 30 minutes or 45 minutes downtime that's not being charged for your time, but mm -hmm. or maybe it is. But it's so important to get that context right. I'm right. Working, with, working with a translator now who it's on a, a product that records um, compliance and ethics um, reporting from mm -hmm. employees and the the translator who is um, helping is is finding it hard because they don't actually know about how that product you know external third-party supplier product works so, so I've realized in dealing with her to make her job easier that I need to spend some time or somebody needs to spend some time with that person to help that translator mm -hmm. by showing showing them the system online so they can see what we're talking about when we're talking about reporting and um, yeah. administration rights and things like that. If you don't have that context, it's, yep. it's hard. So it's difficult to criticize a translator if they don't have that as well. But it's up to the person asking the tra for the translation to provide context. But a translator should never be afraid to also ask for that. That's um, right. You never know what might be possible, right? Like uh, in the situation that you describe, I imagine that no matter how diligent um, that translator is, they wouldn't have access to that product without your help, right? Um, exactly right. And they're, they're talking about it with a third party in the US and they don't actually know what it looks like on screen or, or how it works. So so critical for them to be effective in their translation. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great that you can provide that for the translator. I'm sure that it helps everybody involved. Well, in I realized that I didn't do that, and so I do need to do that for the next round. And the other thing is, when doing it, we've, I've realized that the translator in that situation is so important mm. because they really, they really run the conversation. So if somebody is speaking English and um, it's too fast, they've got to actually control that person mm. and say, slow down and say it again. Or if somebody in Japanese says something that's a little vague, it's mm. up to the translator to actually say, now what do you mean by that? And clarify it before they translate. Right. And so I find that that kind of, you're actually the translator becomes the central person. Mm -hmm. And so if they're more junior in a hierarchy, um, that can be hard for them to stand up. So you've really got to help empower them to say, you are central, you can stop the conversation. You don't need to worry if it's a, a manager or a, a, you know, whoever it is, you should just do that. Obviously, yeah. They actually become the centerpiece. In any yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That, um, to think about that, because I think you're right. When I was studying interpreting as well, we had to do live interpreting forums and the consecutive interpreters were on the floor by the speaker, but depending on who the speaker was, depending on who the consecutive interpreters were, they would sometimes feel confident enough to interrupt and say, okay, you need to break there so we can interpret what you've said so far. And other times they would let it go on too long and right. then things get lost and, you know, um, yeah, it's it's a skill that is probably a bit um, a muscle that needs to be worked until you get comfortable. But I think in that case, we knew that our lecturers were, you know, sitting next to us, giving us like looks and saying, as if to say, "Aren't you going to stop them?" <laughs> you know, soon, like, a, um, which was a, yeah. a form of empowerment, right? Like, oh, okay, it's all right for us to ask the guest speak to stop so that we can interpret and i think that you know especially when you're new to that kind of work it's important to feel like you have that um permission or power to to do something like that even though you might be new because exactly. it is key in controlling the flow of how things happen exactly and i realized before when i was saying translation and translator i really interpreter so. <laughs> well in english it, it's much more um yeah, honyaku. yeah, yeah so right <laughs> yeah yeah in japanese yeah. the honyaku yeah. differentiation makes it easy but i mean i think it's sort of the same some similar things come up with translation as well right the translator feeling like it's okay for them to ask and i think you know of course they need to keep in mind that they might not get what they're asking for but it's still worth asking right like i usually ask my clients 
Do you have re reference materials that you'd like us to use? Do you have a glossary? Is there a previous agreement? Can you provide any of that? Because you don't want to be sitting there translating an agreement that refers to the original agreement and thinking, I wonder if that was translated as well. You know, you, exactly. yeah. you're asking and you can't rely on the client to necessarily think of that, right? And you might exactly. ask and they might say, oh, we don't have a copy of that. And, you know, you, you didn't get what you wanted, but nothing lost either, right? No, right. That's correct. And it could impact what you're translating currently. And yes. also the might come up you might be translating in the evening and there's a lot of translators I know who work through the night and deliver mm -hmm. in the morning. and so that the clients not around to actually ask so you if you got a good checklist like that I think that's a really great idea um, yeah. and and to use that and, and to make yourself more efficient and um, really appealing to the people who are on the other side um, right. to hear, hear you ask those things it, it's really proactive and and I think very appealing to have a translator and interpreter who, who behaves like that. Yeah, so. I think it is better to be proactive because, you know, I think sometimes translators might lose, lose sight of the fact that the translation is only one of the many things that the client is dealing with, right? It's, it might be one thing on a very long list of to-dos that they need to check off. And so it might just not occur to them that giving you this piece of information or this document could be very helpful but your That's focus right. is the translation and so it, you know you've got more context you've got more information about what would be useful and you can always ask right I don't think I can't imagine a client being annoyed by that kind of request no that's right no that's right and that probably is similar for various roles and um, occupations and I think as lawyers too we need to be doing that and do do that ask lots of questions mm. gather information from clients previous documents previous conversations all kinds of things so mm. sometimes you know even a translator or a uh, an interpreter or a lawyer asking so many questions. I think when they ask a lot of questions, it's really good to give a reason why you're asking that. Otherwise, it can yeah. sound like it's inquiring too much and it's off the topic. If you give mm -hmm. some context to the reasons why you're asking the questions, it really helps the person who's being yeah, asked. That's a good point. That's a good point. So I've heard before um, uh, people say that, especially with lawyers. Um, and with in, maybe in terms of drafting as well, but um, with translation, that there's a reasonably high tolerance for language that might not be um, super natural and flowing, but there's a very low tolerance for inaccuracy. So, um, would you agree with that, or do you have any thoughts? That because very important but naturally and so um, there is more flexibility around the way it is said but mm. not so much in the accuracy of what what has been said yeah right so the yeah, the accuracy is non-negotiable but you also do want fluency and nice natural flowing english as well to the extent possible yeah, sometimes it's what I've found is quite useful. Yeah, it's quite useful is when a, a translator has provided, for example, two options. One is a literal translation, and very mm -hmm. it's maybe more mechanical, which may be suitable, and one is more perhaps flexible. And mm -hmm. they can offer those up for not every single paragraph or um, you know that's been translated, but for various ones that might be like this could sound better in this way, or there's this other option, or I can do something else with this. Just yeah, I think. That can be actually very useful as long as you're very sparing in how often you do that, right? Yeah, you do have to be careful. Yeah, I've seen some translators do that very well with um, some of the sort of kimari um, monku, those like seasonal greetings and things. Um, or say, for example, at the beginning of a letter where Japanese, the Japanese text might start with an apology and mm. it doesn't sound quite right in English. And yeah. sometimes, depending on what they know about the context, they might translate it in a way that's sort of more literal, that follows the words on the page, and then flag it. 
and say, you know, you might want to omit this sentence or rephrase it in this way to make it sound like a more natural business letter in English, or they might do it the other way. They might put the more natural translation and flag it and say, look, we don't think you need this sentence or we think it sounds a bit strange, but if you do, it's in, if it's important for you to include it, then it needs to be translated like this. And um, yeah, I thought that that was providing a good option yeah, yeah. for the client to make an informed decision. Because not just, you could do it this way or you could do it that way, but that's right. Yeah, I was hmm. thinking around the what they want their end product to look like, who might be reading it. As mm -hmm. I said before, that audience, who's going to get this as a client? Or it might be going to somebody in England or New Zealand who love to talk about weather. So a, a yeah. seasonal green team including, included might be the right way to do it. So mm -hmm. it's thinking, and that's where that, that passion for the role of translator is coming through with that person who can do that in a really good way. And as you said, be very selective about when they do that. It may mm -hmm. not be that translation or every client or every situation but sometimes it, it it's rec it's recognizable to the translator that that's not quite the way to do it that time and providing suggestions that's just brilliant yeah um, i think like when it's done right it feels like um the client is providing informed options for the for i mean the translator is providing informed options for the client but when exactly. it's ba done badly it sounds like the translator's hedging their bets right yeah so, yeah you got it you got it yeah so it's something to be aware of that yeah the options can be helpful if it's done right yes okay cool well i think we are headed towards the end so before we sign off is there any things that you wish that i'd asked you about that i didn't get to I think there's a lot in our conversation that translators will find really interesting. I hope so. What I thought was, you know, just some advice for translators. I've met mm -hmm. quite a number since meeting you. I've also met lots of others in the, in the circles. But I just sort of thought that uh, some people I have met may like some advice on what I think would be really sure. useful. That's really... Now, some of it may be very obvious translators and joining organizations um, mm -hmm. uh, to, to hear different people speaking, listening to podcasts and, and doing um, things outside of where probably their natural circle. I mm -hmm. can, I do to a certain extent think that some, some translators may be quite isolated from others and work very solidly with words and, at home or in their office and may not have interactions. And so getting out there and seeing what um, others are doing and talking about and being inquisitive and curious can help to um, you know, have that input of knowledge and information when you're doing your translations. Mm, uh, mm. I find that's quite a, a, an interesting, it can be quite impactful to have that other external communication outside yeah. of your actual job. And it's probably something that applies to all kinds of roles, but I think in particular translators, because you do work very solidly and sometimes in a confined um, space where it's really you that's so mm -hmm. getting out is important yes yeah no i think that's i think that's right um you're great at getting out and attending different events and um connecting with people from all different fields i think because even though you're a lawyer you've been working as a lawyer for a long time you participate in a lot of events that aren't strictly related to law right that's right, and that's in order to keep ears to the ground on what's happening. It's mm -hmm. also important to to hear what other people say and how they how they approach difficult situations. Um, I, I'm just listening at say meetings or chamber of commerce meetings, how people ask questions to other people, and mm -hmm. that can help me in ways that I. I others so I'm always listening and more than others do but it's at an, just expand knowledge um, be able to have lots of different different people not specifically on law kinds of topics even mm. baseball which is not one of my favorite 
try and follow a little bit so that I can speak with and talk with um, people who are interested. You know, just being able yeah, to have yeah. a few things to be able to take around the table. Um, it really yeah, yeah, difference. yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's really smart because you don't always want the small talk to be about the weather. I mean, sometimes that might be the best choice, but other times it's good to have a few options up your sleeve, right? And the other thing I would probably suggest is, you know, to, to move when you, you're not feeling comfortable to to not stay in one place if, and do different things because, I mean, it's it's uh, a lot of people say it, but life is short. And I think this it's great to try many different things mm. sometimes. Know, the, the fear of moving or you know salary is good I shouldn't jump or, mm. or you like but sometimes jumping the valley over to the greener pastures is actually um, you know from the one side of the valley you can't see it but once you're over there it really is um, greener overall so I would suggest that you know if you've had time in a certain place for a certain amount of years that maybe it's good to try something new even if it's mm -hmm. yeah just to keep the passion going and be um, inspired as a human being, even more so than, you know, in your particular role. But just uh, I'd encourage people to do all kinds of things if they can. Yeah, well, that came up a little bit when we were preparing for this, right? The idea of not staying somewhere for too long. And I think it's really, um, it's really good to remind ourselves of that. Because if you were still working for JTB, you might not <laughs> be finding it as fun as you did before you went and studied law, right? That's right. And I probably, yeah, that could be true. I could be, it could have found it fun still, but I think I probably would have um, felt about it in a different way and I'd be a different mm. person too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much. I think you've given us a lot of food for thought. So um, where can people go to hear more from you? Um, well, they can find me on, uh, I've got a website and mm -hmm. translation. So I'm looking for my website, um, O'ConnellLaw.com. I'm also mm -hmm. on Facebook and on LinkedIn, as well as Twitter and Instagram. So um, I'm active in different areas at different times. And I also yeah. try and run a blog um, on my webpage, which has lots of little information about um, I'm building a series on contracts um, and just been asked to actually write an article uh, for an outside present, uh, publication on um, points to remember when revising contracts. So. Yeah. Um, I'm working on those things. Um, so you can find me if you search my name, it should come up pretty much at first or second in, in Google now. So I'm happy Excellent. about that. Yeah. yeah, no, I think, um, you know, even obviously I'm a legal translator, but and a lot of people that I know or people that listen to the podcast aren't legal translators, but it's very common for people to be given the occasional contract to translate, even if they're not a legal translator or something yeah. that's related to a legal translation in some way. So I bet they could find some relevant, interesting information. I know that when you posted about GDPR, that a lot yes. of people were, you know, paying very close attention to that because all of our inboxes were being flooded and we were all sort of like, hang on, what is, what is this all about? And you really broke exactly. it down in a... Yeah. yeah. And the other thing there is, um, you know, contracts, one of my blogs is about contracts being an extension of your brand. So if you're a translator and you are providing your supplier, you know, translation agreement to a company, what does that look like? What standard right. is that? That will show the, the company that you're going to be working with what they the, the client experience with you. But they will look at your contract and maybe judge you upon that. Mm -hmm. So that's why I really believe that having your contracts all lined up nicely um, mm -hmm. in a lovely suite of docs does make a, a reflection on you and any occupation you're in. And it applies to translators and their documents and their own contracts as much as any, any other occupation. Sure, especially because that's one of the first interactions with a new client as well, right? So it's sort of part of your first impression. That's right. Mm, excellent. That's awesome advice. Thank you so much, Catherine. And it was great talking to you. And like I said, I think you've got people thinking about all kinds of different things. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Sarah. I really enjoyed it. If anyone's got any questions, I'm happy to answer those anytime. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, Catherine. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to my conversation with Catherine. I hope you found it as interesting as I did. Just a reminder that you can find the show notes for this episode on the website at translationmavens.com slash podcast. Also, if you'd like to be kept informed about new episodes, you can follow the Translation Mavens Facebook page or you can subscribe to our mailing list via the Translation Mavens website. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this episode. Thanks for listening. Bye.